Hello and welcome to Your Actors Beyond the Byline podcast. I'm Malta Kettleson and this week is one of the busiest weeks for Brussels and international politics, as it's the first time the capital of Europe is hosting so many leaders at once for NATO, G7 and EU summits. I talked to Alex Brzozowski and Kira Taylor on the outcome of the summit and the announcement by von der Leyen and Biden on Friday morning. Hello, Alex. There has been a flurry of summits in Brussels this week. Ukraine's President Zelensky addressed both EU and NATO leaders. Can Ukraine be satisfied with what it was promised? Hi, Malta. Yeah, that really depends on what you're looking at. I mean, at NATO, he asked for hardware and really got it. So NATO leaders agreed on additional support, which was also including protective equipment against the poten potential use of chemical and nuclear weapons in the country. So here he got what he wanted. However, obviously not get the no-fly zone, which was off the table quite early, and the provision for fighter jets, which has proven tricky in the past two weeks. Also here, uh, things are really not moving. But what was striking was that on the one month anniversary of Russia's invasion, Zelensky basically told NATO leaders that in the future they should never say that Ukraine's army does not meet NATO standards and kind of made the case that Ukraine is defending common security in Europe. So that was quite a powerful case to make. And should they revisit the issue of membership any, at any point in the future, this could come up again. On the EU side, on the other hand, he is probably not quite getting what he's asking for. EU leaders repeated their pledges of support on the future path of Ukraine, but they also stopped short of agreeing on any kind of no new powerful sanctions on Russia or even the fast track uh, to candidate status. So the latter two Zelensky has been repeatedly requesting. On the candidate status, we most likely don't see movement anytime soon. I mean, earlier this month, EU leaders tasked the Commission to prepare an opinion on Ukraine's EU membership bid, but that's a very lengthy process and that can actually take weeks to months. So far, we haven't heard anything from the Commission, and as we understand, either because they take their regular time or might actually want to come up with some kind of creative solution for Ukraine in this case. Did Zelensky's message go down well with EU leaders? It's true that it was quite an emotional address on Thursday night. So when we remember in the beginning um, of the invasion, when he spoke to EU leaders, that was 24 hours after the invasion. Then it was still unclear what was going to happen and what uh, was to be expected. So naturally, back then, he made quite an impression. And it's true that they moved with unprecedented speed in the first two weeks on subsequent sanctions packages. This time around, it might have been probably even more powerful as he addressed EU leaders separately, seemingly also rating their commitment to support Ukraine. One person that in particular didn't get away too well was Hungary in this case. At some point, according to the transcript and the video that was published, he told Hungary's Prime Minister Orban he should decide for himself on which side he's standing. So Hungary and Bulgaria are the only two EU members which don't provide weapons to Ukraine. But ties between Kiev and Budapest have always been rather cold. We remember that Hungary for years was blocking meetings of uh, the NATO-Ukraine Commission, for example. And also there have been suggestions that Budapest is rather reluctant to adopt sanctions against Russia over those historical ties and disputes over language that those two countries were having. But what are the obstacles to moving more quickly towards a new round of sanctions? So in general, the main thinking in Brussels at the moment seems to be that uh, first it would be good to implement the first four sanctions packages that have been decided over the past four weeks. And this includes also closing existing loopholes and then 
move on to the next fifth package. So the loopholes could, for example, include cryptocurrencies or converting currencies into rubles. But at the same time, the summit this week seemed to have brought up the understanding that considering the escalation of the war and the fact that whole cities are being erased like Mariupol, in this case, the conclusions for the next steps should be drawn rather sooner than later. The only issue is that energy sanctions obviously are painful also on the European economy. And the question will be how well uh, EU leaders will be able to mitigate the outcomes of those sanctions. Okay, thank you, Alex. So on the 25th of March, Ursula von der Leyen, the President of the European Commission, and Joe Biden, the President of the United States, gave an announcement in the morning. Let's analyze especially what Biden said during this announcement. The United States welcomed the European Union's powerful statement early this month, committing to rapidly reduce its dependence on Russian gas. Today, we've agreed on a joint game plan toward that goal, while accelerating our progress toward a secure, clean energy future. This initiative focuses on two core issues. One, helping Europe reduce its dependency on Russian gas as quickly as possible. And secondly, reducing Europe's demand for gas overall. Hello, Kira. Hello. So what does this mean and how quickly can this be achieved? So this means the launch of an energy task force. That was what was announced this morning. It will have representatives from the White House and representatives from the European Commission. It will have these two focuses, so reducing Europe's reliance on Russian fossil fuels and also building up renewable energy infrastructure both in the US and in the EU. So the announcements are building on what both countries are already doing. So the US has already got a ban on Russian fossil fuel. The EU is in a slightly different position. It, it can't really do that at the moment because of how reliant it is on Russia. But it has this repower EU plan to get off Russian fossil fuels and both the US and the EU are also rolling out um, more renewable energy and, and green policy. To address the first point, the United States, together with our international partners, we're going to work to ensure an additional 15 billion cubic meters of liquefied natural gas, LNG, for Europe this year. And as the, Euro as the EU works to discontinue it buying Russian gas well before 2030, it will also, will also work to uh, ensure additional EU market demand for 50 billion cubic meters of LNG from the United States annually by 2030. To accomplish this, the European Commission is going to work with the member states to store gas across the continent. Considering the capacity for LNG being shipped is already at or near full capacity in Europe, how can this shift happen? How can, you know, how much longer do you think Russian gas will keep flowing? So the issue of LNG capacity was something that both President Biden and President von der Leyen raised in their joint statements. They emphasised that there needs to be a focus on LNG infrastructure, so terminals, but also interconnectors to link countries so that they can move gas between them in the EU, and also gas storage, which is being talked about uh, by EU leaders today. On getting off Russian gas, there is really no simple answer, and there's not really a date for it. We've seen that EU leaders will uh, send informal conclusions in Versailles and will probably agree today that they should get off Russian fossil fuels 
as soon as possible, but there is no date. In terms of numbers, so the 15 billion cubic meters that the US has pledged in this agreement would be on top of roughly 22 BCM that the EU would receive anyway this year from the US. But the EU imported 155 BCM of gas, so LNG and pipeline in 2021, and Russia made up 45% of EU supply. 15 BCM is about equivalent to Russian LNG imports last year. So I think there's a hope between the EU and the US that this new LNG coming from the US would replace that. But the agreement is very early on. So we're still waiting for confirmation on pricing. Um, how this would actually be met, whether it would have to divert supply that would go to other countries. The EU and the US are still working out details on how to increase that number up to 50 BCM, which they said they could do. So again, the only tangible date that we're getting from the EU at the moment is that it plans to cut two thirds of Russian gas by the end of this year. And that was about 100 BCM. About 100 BCM, yes. We need to double down on our clean energy goals and accelerate progress toward our net zero emissions future. That's what the second part of this initiative is all about. The United States and the European Union are going to work together to take concrete measures to reduce dependence on natural gas, period, and to maximize the, available, the, avail, the availability and use of renewable energy. A strong statement from Biden to accelerate the move away from fossil fuels altogether. How do you see this working out? an acknowledgement between both the EU and the US that they need LNG for Europe urgently because of what's going on in Ukraine and because of high energy prices. But both also want to highlight their green commitments. They're both signed up to the Paris Agreement and the EU has this uh, target to reduce its emissions. The, the US also has one. The EU has a plan in place to meet this. So it has its Fit for 55 climate legislation. But again, the European Commission is recognising that it needs to raise ambition, particularly when it comes to renewable energy capacity and energy efficiency. And I think that's where you see this second pillar uh, of the agreement come in where actually these countries are saying, yes, we need gas in the short term, but really the long-term solution to this to both get more energy independency and also tackle high energy prices is to have renewable energy and also energy efficiency where you actually stop using so much energy. What's interesting is that the EU and the US are hinting at more cooperation between the two. That could possibly take away some of the competition between them on green technology. But again, it's very early days of this decision. I know that eliminating R Russian gas will have costs for Europe, but it's not only the right thing to do from a moral standpoint, it's going to put us on a much stronger strategic footing. Yeah. So Biden just said here basically what you just said in your last answer. What are the costs here in the short term and what are the gains in the long term? I think a lot of that is still to be seen, particularly the costs are still to be seen. The energy crisis isn't going to go away. This isn't a complete answer to that. But what it could do is it could stabilise prices in the EU a little. Prices at the moment are partly high because the energy mar in market in Europe is predicting energy sanctions. It's actually thinking, well, what if the EU decides to stop importing Russian fossil fuels or what if the Kremlin actually turns off the tap? So less Russian energy could help stabilise the EU energy market. The gains in the long term would be that 
the EU is less reliant on Russia. That's an aim anyway, but this could be one of the steps towards that. And if the renewable side also comes through, which isn't if because there's less detail on the renewable energy side of this agreement, there would also be a climate benefit. But again, the the short-term side of this agreement and also the emphasis on using gas has meant that some are fearful that there will be a lock-in to gas and, a, and an increase in gas infrastructure that could mean the EU is reliant on gas for quite a while longer. Kira, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. We are also focusing on the new subvariant of Omicron, named BA2, that is spreading rapidly, leading to a new wave of infections across Europe. With the cases in many countries rising, how worried should people be about the BA2 variant? Will vaccines protect against it? Over to Evi Chiori, together with Guido Persichite and Amalie Merch for this story. Welcome to the podcast, uh, Guido and Amalie. Hi, thanks Hi. for having us. So, Kidre, as a variant of Omicron, BA2 is leading to a new wave of COVID-19 infections across Europe and the US. What do we know so far when it comes to this new variant? Yeah, so this time we're meeting to talk not about new variant, but a new subgroup of the Omicron variant known as BA2. And uh, Omicron has several sublineages. The most famous are BA1, BA11, and BA2. So BA2 is not that new, actually. And it was first identified in India and South Africa in late December 2021. But it took time for it to overtake all the infections, not only in Europe, but globally now. And what we know about it, so in comparison to BA1 subvariant, which was leading the infections a few months ago, so this subvariant BA2 has 20 additional mutations on its spike uh, protein compared with BA1. So these differences between BA1 and BA2 are actually bigger than between the original variant of COVID-19 and alpha variant. As we understand, differences are big, and it means that the sublineages might respond differently to vaccines or spread more quickly. So WHO reported in February that BA2 appears um, to be more transmissible than BA1, mm-hmm. and one Danish study showed that it is over 30% more transmissible than BA1. So it is estimated that this increased transmissibility will prolong the Omicron wave in many places. Mm-hmm. And how worried should people be about the BA2 variant? Uh, will vaccines protect us against it? Yeah, so as far as uh, it's known, three-dose vaccination protects well against uh, symptomatic infection. And uh, yeah, it is just expected that uh, they will remain. And which which groups uh, are more vulnerable when it comes to this? Uh, it's the same as with any variant or any subgroup of COVID-19 variant. So people who have weakened immune system or older people are more vulnerable. So this is the reason why some EU countries have already started introducing a second booster dose or the fourth mm-hmm. dose for these groups. And if we're talking about catching the virus, then the more contacts we have, social contacts, uh, the bigger the risk is. Mm-hmm. And Emily, most of you countries are uh, heading towards lifting the restrictions. Could this new way delay the lift of the restrictions? 
so far there are no signs that the countries are going to stop lifting their restrictions or going to reintroduce them for that matter. So far, it's Austria seems to be the only EU country reintroducing measures. The health minister, Johannes Rauch, announced uh, Friday last week that the FFP2 masks will become compulsory indoors once again. <laughs> and, and otherwise, we've just seen Germany scrap a load of restrictions during this weekend, which means that everyone can go back to a more normal public life, except for wearing masks on public transport uh, and in nursing facilities as well. And all this was done on a weekend where the incidence rates in Germany had climbed up to an all-time high of around uh, 1,870 per 100,000 people. And when it comes to the countries who lifted their restrictions early in the year, they seem to think that the rising cases won't do too much damage, as it looks like right now. Yeah, Sunday, the, the Irish deputy, Prime Minister Leo Varadkar, had said that the rising case numbers are uh, a cause for concern, but not a cause for panic. So in Ireland, they lifted all their restrictions in January and they have no plans of reintroducing them. Uh, their focus is more on making sure that as many as possible receive this uh, booster shot instead. And what's the image we have from the EU countries? How are they moving when it comes to dealing with this new wave, I would say? And uh, how is the Commission planning to tackle this new variant? As I uh, just mentioned, the countries aren't too concerned about reintroducing restrictions. Uh, of course, they'll be keeping an eye on the case numbers along the way because that could also result in possible new variants and their severity and so on. So that's basically also what they've done the whole way through the pandemic. But the general trend right now is that even though the numbers are rising, the death rate is decreasing and the intensive care units aren't under as much pressure from COVID patients. So that was the message, at least from the ECDC, as of Tuesday this week. And when it comes to the commission, they aren't really taking any special measures. They have tried to coordinate efforts and do vaccine sharing throughout the whole pandemic, um, which is still the case. And as a result, they've introduced measures like the, the COVID certificate, for example. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there are all the response efforts, which are meant to rebuild and create better resilience of healthcare systems in all the EU countries. But that has all been ongoing for, for a while. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to traveling, is it safe to travel or do we have to be a bit more cautious about it? There haven't been any updates recently to, to travel restrictions and stuff. There's still the, the COVID certificate at the moment. So, of course, as it's always been check where you're going and, and if there's possible possibly any restrictions there but i would say it, it's not necessarily less safe at the moment yeah and i think what i can add just for the traveling the commission and actually the member states they were talking recently about prolonging covid 19 certificates for extra one year as the epidemiological situation is unclear and it might be changing so uh, the decision is not uh, yet uh, set in stone, but uh, it's possible that it will be uh, valid for extra one year. Thank you, Gidre and Amelie, for all this very useful uh, information indeed. And thank you for being to the podcast once more. I am Malta Kettleson, and this was your Actives Beyond the Byline podcast. We will be back on your feed next week. Until then, subscribe to our podcast newsletter and visit youractive.com for the latest news. And don't forget to listen to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. Thank you very much for listening.